In Alhamdulillah, Mahmedu, who and Estarino, who and Estofero, when I would be lahim in Shururi and Fusina, was a yati Armalina, Menyahdihilahu Fala Mulilla, Women Yulil Fala Hadiella, was Hadu and La Ilaha illa who Hadahula Sharikala, was Hadu and Mohammedan Abedu or Rasulu. So we discussed in the previous classes that there are certain types of people who are allowed to miss fasting. And there are four categories of people who are allowed to miss fasting that we covered. Those four categories of people are who then? Traveler. The traveler is one category. A traveler is allowed to miss fasting. Also, somebody who is sick, ill, is allowed to miss fasting. And there are two types of illnesses. One is where you expect to recover. And the other illness is where you don't expect to ever recover. In the one where you expect to recover, after you recover, then you have to Make up those days in the type where you're not going to recover. You simply feed a poor person. It's not paying. It's not money. You gotta. It's the feeding of a poor person, feeding the poor person for every day. The fidya. The traveler, of course, just makes up the days. Third category: elderly people. Those who are elderly and frail and are not able to fast anymore, then they are allowed to miss, and their ruling is to feed a poor person for every day. The fourth category. The women who are on the period or on the postnatal bleeding. The women who are on the period or on the postnatal bleeding, then they have to miss fasting. They are not allowed to fast. And then afterwards, they have to make those days up. The only topic left now is pregnant and breastfeeding women. What is the ruling for pregnant and breastfeeding women? The scholars on the whole, they've all agreed that Pregnant and breastfeeding women are allowed to miss fasting. There's differences behind the reason, or some scholars, they say, that a pregnant and breastfeeding woman can miss fasting just by virtue of the fact that she is pregnant or breastfeeding. Others, they say, no, it's not just by virtue of that fact. If she's breastfeeding or pregnant... And there is going to be some harm if she fasts, then she can miss. If there is no harm, they have no reason to miss. So there is a difference between the scholars as to whether pregnant and breastfeeding women can just miss by virtue of being pregnant or breastfeeding, or if there has to be some element of harm attached to it. But generally all of them are agreed they can miss. The question then, though, is what do they have to do afterwards? Pregnant and breastfeeding women, what do they have to do afterwards? They miss some days because of pregnancy or breastfeeding, then what are they going to do? They make up for the fasts that they missed. Mm -hmm. 
So you have two main opinions about it. The majority opinion appears to be that they make up the days afterwards. Many of the scholars hold the opinion that pregnant women or breastfeeding women, if they miss fasting, that they have to make up those days afterwards. There is a hadith when a man came to the Prophet wasallam, a traveler from outside of Medina, came to the Prophet wasallam, and the Prophet wasallam, was having lunch at the time. And the man arrived. So the Prophet wasallam, said to him, join us. The man said, but I'm fasting. And he was obviously also traveling. He'd come from outside of Medina. So the Prophet ﷺ told him about the permission for travelers. He said, Allah has excused travelers from fasting and pregnant women and breastfeeding women. Those two were also added on as pieces of information. In that narration, the Prophet ﷺ said to him, Allah has excused the traveler from fasting and from half of the prayer, because you're allowed to shorten, and has excused pregnant women and breastfeeding women. The scholars use this narration to say that pregnant and breastfeeding women therefore have to make up the days afterwards because the Prophet ﷺ mentioned them both in the same breath as we say as the traveler. He mentioned to the traveler the ruling about traveling and then added on the issue of the pregnant and the breastfeeding women into the same sentence, indicating that the ruling for the pregnant and breastfeeding women who miss is the same as the ruling as the traveler. Hence, the Prophet mentioned them all together in that. And what is the ruling for the traveler? When he misses afterwards, he has to make it up. And therefore, uh, many of the scholars, they say, pregnant and breastfeeding women who miss have to make up the days afterwards. Once that pregnancy is over, once the breastfeeding period is over, once they're all done from that and they've recovered, so now they make up all of those days. There is a secondary opinion though, held by some of the scholars, for example, Sheikh al-Albani rahimahullah ta'ala, and it is an opinion which is ascribed to, mentioned from Abdullah ibn Abbas, and Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhum from the Salaf, from the Sahaba who both said and others amongst them that the pregnant and breastfeeding women if they miss some days then afterwards all they have to do is feed a poor person for each day they missed and they don't have to make it up. If a pregnant or breastfeeding woman misses fasting then there is an opinion mentioned from the evidence of the statement of Ibn Abbas and the statement of Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhum that she doesn't have to make up the days again. She just feeds a poor person for each day that she missed. So those are the two main opinions. The scholars who say that no, you can't feed a poor person. Pregnant and breastfeeding women have to make up those days is because when you look at the four categories of people who are allowed to miss, 
four categories we just discussed. Traveler, an ill person who is expected to recover, an ill person not expected to recover, and the elderly in age. From those four categories, or, uh, and then the, the, the period and the postnatal, but from these four categories so far, ill being two categories, from those four categories, the traveler and the one expected to get better, what's their ruling? Make it up. The one not expected to get better and the elderly in age, what's their ruling? Fidya. So you've got two rulings established. Traveler and the one expected to get better, their ruling is make it up afterwards. The one not expected to get better or the elderly in age, their ruling? Fidya. Feed a poor person. Pregnant and breastfeeding women, which category are they more appropriate to be placed into? The majority of the scholars say it is more appropriate to put pregnant and breastfeeding women into the category of the traveler and the ill person expected to get better because their situation most resembles that category. A traveler, when he's on a journey, he's journeying for a while and then he stops. stops and comes back home. A person who's ill but expected to get better is ill for a while, a week, two weeks, a month, but then gets better. So both the traveler and the ill person who is expected to get better eventually come back to being in a situation of full recovery. The traveler back at home again, recovered. He's not traveling anymore, he can fast. The ill person who's got better now, recovered, he can fast. They say exactly the same for pregnant women. Once a woman has given birth, done and dusted, birth has happened, she's not pregnant anymore, after a while she's going to get back to her strength again. She's going to get back to her normal, how she used to be before that, back to her abilities and her the body and the strength and everything, going to go back to what it was once the pregnancy is over and done with. So when she does get back to that state, she can fast. Just like a traveler, when he eventually gets back, he can fast. A new person, when he eventually recovers, can fast. She, when she gives birth and is done and dusted from that, can then fast. Breastfeeding woman the same. She's breastfeeding at the time for a year, for two years, for months, whatever it might be. But when she finishes, then she's now back into a situation when she can fast. So the majority of the scholars say it is more appropriate to put the pregnant and breastfeeding women into the category of the traveler and the ill person who is temporarily ill and going to get better. Because if you put them into the other category, the category who don't have to make up, they just give the fidya, that's the category of the elderly person because the elderly person is not going to get any younger and he's not going to turn into a situation where he's got his health and strength back. He's getting older and older, not younger. So he's never expected, even though it could happen for some, maybe one year they feel very old and weak and frail, but the next year, just the way it is, they've got a bit of strength, the way they've changed their lifestyle, their diet or whatever, maybe. But that's rare. It's not expected of an elderly person to come back to a situation where they can fast again. Permanently ill, not expected for them to come back to a situation where they can fast again. That's why they can just give the fidya. 
pregnant woman, she's never expected to get back to her health. She's going to be pregnant all her life or ill all her life. No, not expected. It is expected she will get back to her normal health. Once the pregnancy is done and gone, she'll get back to her normal health eventually. Breastfeeding woman, once it's all done, she'll come back to her normal body again and to being normal, fit and healthy and how it was before again. So they say, how can you put them into the category of the one who gives fidya? The one who gives fidya is because they're not going to get back into a situation where they can fast again. Pregnant and breastfeeding women eventually, however long it takes, are going to get into a situation where they can fast again. That's why the majority of the scholars, it appears the majority, say that the pregnant and breastfeeding women afterwards have to make up the days they missed because of pregnancy or breastfeeding. But like we said, there are statements of Ibn Abbas, of uh, Ibn Umar, radiyallahu anhum, indicating that the pregnant and breastfeeding women can just give the fidya and they don't have to make it up. And there are actually several other opinions too, but they are the main opinions on that. So then after that, No, they make it up once they've recovered because a breastfeeding woman could be carrying on breastfeeding for two years. She may miss the first year for pregnancy, the next two years out of breastfeeding, all legitimate. So once they've recovered, whenever that is, then they have to make it up. So the next chapter then is the chapter of I'tikaf and Taraweeh. The chapter regarding i'tikaf and taraweeh. So, باب الاعتكاف وقيام رمضان وقيام رمضان. Here now, this chapter obviously it follows on from the chapter of fasting that we've just done. This is a chapter obviously directly linked to that. It's now going to talk about the issue of i'tikaf and the issue of the taraweeh, the night prayer. I'tikaf. Linguistically means to stick to a place, to stick to a place, to remain in a place, any place. I'tikaf just means to cling on to a place, stick to a place, remain in a given place. That's what I'tikaf means. Allah said in the Quran, وَمَا هَذِهِ التَّمَاثِيلُ الَّتِي أَنْتُمْ لَهَا عَاكِفُونَ What are these statues that you are all doing i'tikaf at? Because the mushrikun, they used to go sit at their statues and stay there and be at their statues and cling on to that spot. That's what they used to do. So linguistically they were doing i'tikaf at the statues. Clinging on to that temple of their staying there, spending time there. That's what i'tikaf linguistically means. To stay somewhere to stick to a place, to cling on, and remain in a place. Islamically though, i'tikaf, it is to stay in the masjid for the purpose of worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for the purpose of freeing yourself up for the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To cling, to stay, to remain in a masjid, to free yourself up for the worship of Allah <coughs> subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
So the first hadith we have here regarding this. عن ابي هريره رضي الله عنه ان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال من قام رمضان ايمانا واحتسابا غفر له ما تقدم من ذنبه prays in ramadan with iman and ihtisab ihtisab meaning that you're wanting the reward from allah for it you're doing this action with iman, sincerity, wanting the reward from Allah, not for any other reason. Then whoever prays in Ramadan with that type of intention, iman and sincerity, wanting reward from Allah alone, nothing else, then that person, his sins will be forgiven that have passed by before. His previous sins will be forgiven. So this narration then is talking about the topic of the taraweeh prayer. Talking about the night prayer. اَيْ تَصْدِيقًا بِوَعْدِ اللَّهِ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى وَاحْتِسَابًا اَيْ طَلَبًا لِلْأَجْرِ وَالثَّوَابِ So the hadith means whoever prays with iman in Allah, knowing the promise of Allah for those who obey Him, worship Him, doing it sincerely, desiring the reward from Allah, not for any showing off, not for any position or any worldly gain or any other insincere reason. Then that person, that his sins, his previous sins, they will be forgiven. And this is in reference to the minor sins, that all of your previous minor sins will be forgiven. Major sins, they require a person to repent as Allah mentioned in the Quran, in Tajtanibu If you stay away from the major sins that we have prohibited you from, we will expiate the other sins, i.e. the minor sins. So the one who prays the taraweeh in Ramadan with iman, sincerity, desiring the reward from Allah alone, no other reason then that person, his previous sins will be forgiven. And the meaning of the narration, whoever prays Ramadan, means whoever prays every single night of Ramadan. This isn't just one night you pray it and this hadith applies to you. It is every single night you pray the full Ramadan, every night taraweeh, with iman, desiring the reward from Allah, then your previous sins are forgiven. So that is a great encouragement for a person to make sure that he prays every single night. That a person strives in the prayer, the taraweeh prayer. Also here, there is the obvious issue regarding whether you should pray 8 or whether you should pray 20 or any other given number. So how many are you supposed to pray then? There is a hadith where Aisha radiallahu anha mentioned basically that the Prophet would never go more than 11 and in one narration 13. That's including Witr. 
11 or 13 including witr so that would basically just be your eighth figure and then on top of that the witr but there are opinions you can do more than that many scholars hold the opinion that it's not restricted to eight as Sheikh al-Fawzan included that it is not restricted to eight and they say they mention some evidences and examples there's one hadith when a man came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and he asked him how do I pray the night prayer how he said mathna mathna Pray it in twos. Two raka'at, salam. Two raka'at, salam. Pray it in twos. And that's all he told him. Meaning the man was then going to go away and pray the night prayer in twos, just as the Prophet told him when he went and asked him, How do I pray the night prayer? How many twos was he going to pray? As many as you wanted. How come? Because he didn't mention a number. The man came to the Prophet ﷺ asking him, How shall I pray the night prayer? The Prophet ﷺ told him, Pray in twos. And that's it. Never gave him any restriction. Pray in twos, but no more than eight. Never said that. So now the man's going to go away and pray in twos. How many twos? Who knows? 20, 40, 60. Prophet didn't give him any restriction. As many. Because the Prophet never told him that there's a restriction. Bear in mind though, you can't go above this number or that number. And was, was the man in need of being told that or not? The man came to the Prophet inquiring and asking about how to pray the night prayer. <coughs> to tell him to pray in twos. To pray in twos. That's explaining how to pray the night prayer, but isn't the number you're allowed to go to as a maximum part of explaining how to pray the night prayer? Definitely. And they say in the principles of Usul al-Fiqh, لا يجوز تأخير البيان عن وقت الحاجة That if there's a situation where some clarification is needed about something, then it's not permissible to delay clarifying. The man came wanting clarification about how to pray the night prayer. Right now was the moment of need, the situation where this man needed the details of how to pray the night prayer. <coughs> the Prophet ﷺ told him twos. If one of the important details of the night prayer was that you cannot go beyond eight, there and then in that situation the Prophet would have told him, and it's only up to eight though. Twos up to eight. How come he never gave him any restriction? Because right now that man's going to go away, pray in twos, 10, 12, 20, 24, 30, 36, who knows? Prophet never told him stop at any given number. So this is one of the evidences that some of the scholars use to say that you can't restrict people to a given number because the Prophet never restricted this man to a given number. And that was the moment, the time, where that detail was needed. The man wanted to know, how do I pray? If night prayer was only up to eight, then that was the moment to tell him. 
and he wasn't told, meaning it wasn't a part of the ruling. The man was purposely left to just go pray in twos as many as you want, basically. So the scholars, they say, that is a strong evidence, they say, that there is no restriction. If there was a restriction, then without a doubt, the Prophet would have said to him, pray in twos, but don't go above eight. Definitely in that situation. Because otherwise, now imagine, it's very easy to imagine this situation. Somebody comes to you and says, how do I pray the night prayer, Ramadan's here now, I can't make it to the mosque because of my work. I'm going to just pray at home the taraweeh, a little bit what I can do. How do I do it? So you're going to tell him, for example, praying twos. And if you definitely believe it's only eight, you're going to say to him, and it's eight raka'at, by the way, and then you do your your witr. You're not going to say that? You're going to say that? Definitely. Because the guy is asking you, how do I pray the night prayer? So here the man was asking the Prophet, how do I pray the night prayer? And the Prophet never mentioned anything about the number. He just said in twos. That's the way to pray it. No restriction. So some scholars say it's open. It's not restricted to just eight. It is open beyond that. And that is the opinion of Sheikh Al-Fawzan and others. Other scholars have mentioned though, that the action of the Prophet ﷺ clarifies this matter. And we know that we always take all of the sunnah together in context. The action of the Prophet ﷺ as per the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha is that he never went over 13 as a maximum with the witr included as per one of the variations of the narration. Which means that it was basically the eight. The eight and then the witter, that it wasn't 20. It wasn't going into those kinds of numbers. 13 maximum, including the witter. That's all he ever did. He never went above that number. He never prayed 20. The Prophet never prayed 20 or 24 or 30 or 36. So then some scholars will say, we follow the actions and the example of the Prophet ﷺ clearly. And the example of the Prophet ﷺ is that he never went on to 20 or these kind of bigger numbers. He was always restricted to that 11 or 13 maximum with the witter included. So you have that difference between the scholars in explaining this particular issue of how many can be prayed. Uh, some of the people who do 20... Even though, as we said, it can be understood to be open and therefore possible, some of the evidences they use are not legitimate, though. Some of the evidences they try to use for it are not legitimate. But what we should say is this is not a topic that a Sunni, a Salafi, should uh, waste his time with on a person who's upon misguidance. You don't go start debating the 8 and 20 issue with a person of misguidance who still goes around the graves and does tawaf around them and does shirk and all sorts. Calls upon the awliya. Does all types of things. It would be foolishness of you to go and start debating 8 and 20 with him. That shows the lack of fiqh of the Sunni, of the Salafi. You need to go debate with him over issues of tawheed, of aqidah. The man is still doing shirk around the graves. He's still calling upon the dead. He still believes in all types of shafa'ah. That's what you need to discuss with him, not 8 or 20. If he's praying 20, then inshallah it's okay. There are evidences indicating you can go above up to 20. You can. You could. 
That isn't a major sticking point. His beliefs in aqidah and tawheed certainly are. So you don't go debating the issue of 8 and 20 with these people who want to open up these debates. You Wahhabis, you pray 8, we'll debate, we'll discuss. Tell them we have nothing to discuss or debate with you. There are Sunni, Salafi scholars who allow praying more than 8. So there's nothing to discuss as far as I'm concerned. You want to discuss, then it's going to be on issues of aqidah, of tawheed, of usul, of talking about the fundamentals of the religion that you people are astray on. Not issues of rafi'il yadain, raising your hands in the prayer, rafi'il yadain, or 8 or 20. These are not the topics you go start debating people over. A person who gets involved in that type of thing, it shows that he's not himself studying and understanding the religion and the principles of it and how to talk to people, how to give da'wah, if you're going off and wasting time with some Sufi talking about 8 and 20, and the man is still calling upon the dead and doing all types of things. So a person needs to be aware of these points. Then after that, عن عائشة رضي الله عنها قالت كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا دخل العشر أي العشر الأخير من رمضان شد مئزره she mentions now about the last 10 days of Ramadan. Well, the last 10 nights of Ramadan. That when the last 10 nights of Ramadan used to come in, the Prophet ﷺ would tighten his waistband. And he would wake up his family in the night. And he would pray in the night. He would pray in the night and he would wake up his family to do so too. So this hadith is indicating the extra amount of worship that the Prophet ﷺ used to do in the last 10 of Ramadan. He used to do a lot of worship anyway throughout Ramadan. But then he used to do even more in the last 10 nights of Ramadan. And it mentions shadda mi'zara, that he would tighten his waistband. And this is a type of phrase used in Arabic, and the meaning of it is to strive harder. It's like we say in English, roll up your sleeves. So they have a phrase in Arabic, tighten your waistband. Just like we say, roll up your sleeves. So he tightened his waistband meaning that he was now prepared for extra effort and extra striving. And it can also mean, as some scholars mentioned, tightening the waistband, that he would not engage in intercourse or intimacy in the last ten nights of Ramadan, that he would only be striving upon worship and obedience and prayer. So he would tighten his waistband, i.e. strive further in those last ten nights. Layla, And he would pray the whole night. He would pray the whole night of the last ten nights. So this indicates that the person, uh, the one who sleeps, then his night is dead. But the one who stays awake and prays and worships, his night is alive. So in the narration when he says the Prophet used to bring his night to life, i.e. that he used to wake up and he used to pray, and uh, uh, he used to pray a lot more, Potentially, as per the understanding of some scholars, that he would pray more in the last 10 than he would in the first 20. 
And that's maybe why you see, for example, in Mecca and Medina, in the last ten nights they pray more. They pray extra taraweeh in the last ten nights compared to the first twenty. And this could be a potential evidence for it. Because it mentions in the last ten nights the Prophet used to do more and additional worship compared to the first twenty. So possibly it could be understood, potentially, that he prayed more raka'ah. Well, not the Prophet ﷺ because it's mentioned he never went above, but it can be a an evidence to allow you to increase in your worship and to do more raka'at in the last ten, possibly. وَقَدْ جَاءَ أَنَّهُ سَسَلَّمْ فِي الْعِشْرِينَ الْأُوَلِ كَانَ يُصَلِّي وَيَنَامْ فَإِذَا دَخَلَتِ الْعَشْرِ الْأَوَاخِرِ لَمْ يَذُقْ غَمْضَهِ in the first 20 nights, the Prophet ﷺ used to pray at night, but then also used to have some time for sleep. But in the last 10 nights, it's mentioned he would pray and be in worship the whole night. He wouldn't sleep in the nights of the last 10 nights. He would be awake in the nights of the last 10 nights, in worship, in prayer, uh, and that he would not sleep. In the first 20, he would do his prayer, worship, but also sleep a bit too. But in the last ten it's mentioned he would not sleep. Also in the last part of the narration it mentioned that he would wake up his family. He would wake up his family uh, and uh, encourage them to be upon the worship also. There are some narrations of the Salaf how either the husbands or the wives, spouses one to the other, they would come and flick water onto their faces to wake them up for the night prayer, to encourage them, flick some water onto their face, to encourage them to wake up for the night prayer, get up and pray and do worship. So the Salaf, this is how they were, spouses waking each other up for that ibadah, for that worship in the night prayer. Then also, وَعَنْهَا رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهَا أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم كان يعتكف العشر الأواخر من رمضان حتى توفاه الله ثم اعتكف أزواجه من بعده. That the Prophet ﷺ used to do i'tikaf in the last ten nights or last ten days of Ramadan. Up until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala caused him to die when he died. And then after that his wives used to do the i'tikaf. Initially, it is mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ used to do the i'tikaf in the middle ten nights of Ramadan. Then when it was discovered that Laylatul Qadr is in the last ten nights of Ramadan, he changed his i'tikaf and began doing it in the last ten nights of Ramadan. And he carried on doing it every year up until he died. And then after he died, his wives also used to do i'tikaf. How do women do i'tikaf? In the house. house. So how would that, how do women do i'tikaf then what happens? They wouldn't leave the room. Can't do i'tikaf in the house? There is no such thing as i'tikaf in the house. It's a big mistake that people think women do i'tikaf at home. Widespread. 
I'tikaf can only be done as an act of worship of I'tikaf in the mosque. Women staying in their room at home doesn't class as this type of I'tikaf that is being mentioned here. A lot of people think that and it's always mentioned everywhere. Women if they want to do I'tikaf, if they have permission of their household from their father or their husband, if they're married, and the responsibilities at home can be taken care of, everything can be dealt with, and they have permission to leave and go and do i'tikaf in the mosque, and it's safe, and the mosque is close by, and the facilities in the mosque are secure and secluded, it's all safe and good, then a woman can go and do the i'tikaf in the mosque, in the women's side. That's how it's done. If a woman does not have permission from her husband, she's needed at home, the, the responsibilities, the household duties cannot be fulfilled, the kids, everything, the husband can't do it, then she can't go. She will get reward for staying at home and fulfilling her rights and duties and responsibilities. If she can, those things can be taken care of and she has permission and there is a secluded area in the mosque, secluded, tight, secure, separated and secure from outside and everything else, then yes, she can go with the permission of her husband to the mosque and do i'tikaf. But there's no i'tikaf in staying in the house in the in the in the room or anything like that. So that is regarding the women and the i'tikaf. Next week we're going to start talking about some of the fiqh of i'tikaf. What time does it start exactly? There are differences of opinion. In the last ten nights, last ten days, when do you actually start the i'tikaf? On what day? At what time? What prayer? So we're going to start discussing from that topic next week, inshallah ta'ala, 7 p.m. We'll round off on that for tonight, uh, and we'll carry on next week.